Hello, friends. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon if you're a new listener. Happy to have you here. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder, and each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving their unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop them. Now, today may be the first time you've heard Deborah Cleaver's name, but I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that, one, we'll hear it again and a lot, and two, we are witnessing her contributing to history in real time. I can't remember exactly when I first heard about Deborah and her work through mutual friends of ours. What I can say is that whenever she's come up in conversation, there is always an element of respect and admiration for her wicked smarts, her no bullshit, and her complete and utter brand of total badassery. Now, you're probably wondering who is Deborah Cleaver? Deborah Cleaver has been working at the intersection of technology and democracy since 2004. She currently serves as the founder and CEO of Vote.org, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that uses technology to simplify political engagement, increase voter turnout, and strengthen American democracy. Under Deborah's leadership, Vote.org won the prestigious Night News Challenge in 2015 and was accepted into Y Combinator's 2016 summer cohort. Vote.org is widely recognized as the most cost-efficient and innovative voter turnout organization in America. Over the past two years alone, Vote.org has registered almost one million voters. Again, let me repeat that, one million voters, and has helped over 10 million voters cast ballots in national and local elections. Deborah's work has been featured in Forbes, Mike, and the Huffington Post, and Bustle. Before we cut over to Deborah's interview, as you digest this conversation between Deborah and me, I want to ask you to share this podcast episode with at least three women that you know. One, because our democracy really needs some love and support right now. Two, we have some midterm elections coming up this year, and voter turnout tends to be significantly lower. And three, Vote.org is doing some really important nonpartisan work in the world. So the more that you can help Deborah get the word out about what she's doing, the more we can have people voting, and the more we can see some important change take root in this country. And if you're thinking, Kara, how do I do that? Keep it simple. Just tell another person or share a link to the show notes. You'll find it at levitalcoursalon.com. You can also find it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram via the handle at VitalCore, V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S. I want to thank you in advance for taking that action. Now over to the good stuff. Voila, meet Deborah. Hey, Deborah, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. I am so excited to have you here today. I am very excited to be here today. So we could probably make a bunch of small talk all day, but you have no idea how many questions have rolled through my mind and how hard it was to cull them down into the ones that I'm going to try to stick to and, and ask you today. And I, I wanted to start off with, you have a simple title. You're founder and CEO of a symbol to remember website, vote.org. 
And back in 2008, from all my stalking, you started long distance voter with what seems like an equally simple idea. How did long distance voter come to be? Okay, so it actually goes back. Let's see, I'll try to make it short. I would say uh, election night in 2000 was the first time uh, that it occurred to me that perhaps we had a um, voter turnout problem in America. I was much younger and um, I was watching the election returns with some friends in western Massachusetts and Florida went to Gore and they were like, great, the election's over. And they went to sleep. So I was um, the only one awake when Florida was suddenly red. And um, for anyone who doesn't remember that election, uh, was ultimately decided by the Supreme Court because it was so close in Florida. It came down to counting and recounting uh, ballots in one county that, like, basically a single county in America decided the outcome of the presidential election, which is how we got George W. Bush as president. So in 2004, I was like part of a group of people. There were many of us who were like, George W. Bush can absolutely not be reelected president. Like this would be disastrous. Um, and a friend of mine started a voting project called Swing the State. And um, we helped people from red and blue states travel into swing states to register new voters. And uh, despite this, you know, noble effort and helping to register millions of new voters, voter turnout was again really, really low. And George W. Bush was reelected to office. uh, And I found that pretty devastating. Um, And by 2006, I started to think that maybe part of the problem was that every attempt to increase turnout focused just on voter registration. And I was like, there have to be groups of people who are already registered to vote, um, who have some sort of roadblock that we could clear using the internet. And keep in mind, this was 2006. So this was, an, this was ages ago. And the fact that I was like talking to friends and I was like, could we do something that only involves the internet does not involve us going door to door. By the way, that that's the, the truth. Like vote.org's origin, long distance voters' origin is all that. I really do not like going door to door. I do not <laughs> enjoy the in-person, face-to-face contact. I don't thrive on it. Uh, and in 2004, when I was helping to run Swing the State, I would spend all day out in the field. The field is what we just call, you know, leaving your house. Uh, talking to people all day. And I'd be lucky if I registered six voters in six hours. And I was like, ugh, this is excruciating. So, And I'm picturing you like sunburned, chased by dogs. Yes. Like dehydrated. (laughs) This is the reality of field work. It's really unpleasant. Like once I was like, oh my God, I think that man's going to get his gun. Like we got to go. We got to get off this porch. God. Uh, So in 2006, I'm in Vegas with a group of friends. This is where all good things happen, Vegas. And I'm like... We, I was like, there has to be a group of voters that, that want to vote. And they're already registered. And my friend John was like, what about absentee voters? Is anyone doing anything around absentee voters? And I was like, oh, my God, John, that's it. Like, no one's doing anything with absentee voters. And he's like, great, we can do that. And then we, like, went off and got drunk. And John wrote a mechanical bull. And, you know, about it was almost a full year later where I was like, John, that absentee voter project was a good idea. We should do that. 
Um, and at the same time, got a new job in Los Angeles and was leaving New York. So I found myself at the very end of 2007, living in Los Angeles and not having any friends, which meant that I had a ton of free time. And I was like, let's start that absentee ballot project. And my friend John, not the John you know, a different John, okay. he was like, I even came up with a name. And I was like, what's the name? And he's like, we should call it long distance voter because they vote from long distances. And I was like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> and so we recruited a handful of friends to help us. And everyone took five states, uh, you know, because this was like an after work passion project. And we called the secretary of state uh, in every state in America. And we said, how do you get an absentee ballot in your state? Because their states were silent also. Like there was nothing on the Internet. Um, and so we, we built a website and there was like one page of directions for each state. Like, you know, let's say you live in New York, it'd be like, step one, register to vote. Step two, download this form, like really simple stuff. It's just that it was the only place on the internet. And we launched in, uh, April, 2008 with no money, no staff, just a lot of enthusiasm. And we had half a million visitors by election day. And so we were like, oh, cool, we seem to be onto something. And we just kept going. And from 2008 until probably 2016, when there were zero people on staff, it was just a passion project that we ran at night. Um, but we literally had like 5 million voters, 5 million visitors over that period of time. Um, and so in retrospect, I can tell you the mission and what we did and why we thought it would work. But at the time, it was just that we saw a need we realized that there were people in America who were registered to vote and having trouble casting ballots and no one was doing anything to help them. And we figured if we could help this specific subset of voters, we would probably increase turnout. So now that it's been so long, I can tell you what long distance voters mission was. It was to increase voter turnout by making it easier to vote by mail. But I'm not gonna lie to you, we didn't have a clear <laughs> mission when we launched, we just knew that everyone was trying the same thing over and over, which was registering new voters, and it didn't seem to be increasing voter turnout. Deborah, thank you for sharing this, because I think so many times people have an idea or there is a problem that is causing them friction or there's something they want to change in the world. And I don't know what it is about our day and, and time in history and like where we're at, but it's like, you can't just have a passion project. It's got to be this side hustle that then you scale into like a massive business instantly. I guess what advice would you have for people listening who recognize a problem like you did? Um, probably two pieces of advice. One, you don't need to figure it all out before you get started. You can get started almost immediately. Um, I think people think that they need to have a whole business plan or a theory of change and they need to have money in the bank and they need to have all the ducks lined up in a row before they get started. That's not true. I mean, as soon as we realized that there was a group of voters who potentially had a roadblock that we could clear, we basically got started. Um, I would also say don't wait to have money in the bank. Just get going. I mean... Um, Maybe that's easy to say. I was willing to work on this unpaid for so long, but I think this idea that I would say if 
if like whenever people tell me things for whatever reason people pitch me now I think they think that we have more money than we do <laughs> and they'll say things like and all we need is a million dollars to get started and I always say well what are you going to do if you have zero dollars and if the answer is nothing I'm like so all you know is that with enough money we can solve problems we, <laughs> we all know how innovative right money we exactly and I mean long distance voter we had zero dollars we literally chipped in for a paid hosting plan at DreamHost that was like eight dollars a month uh what so what we had was eight dollars a month and a willingness to put some of our personal time and and that was enough and also you know it we certainly didn't have uh instant success but we had like just enough positive feedback to keep going and um Someone told me something in 2016 that really stuck with me. He was like, if you work day and night for a decade, you too can be an overnight success. And it was the first time that I realized that a lot of people who I thought were overnight successes had really been working quietly for years and years and years. So let's see if I could distill that down. I would say just get started you don't need a ton of money to get started and really no one is an overnight success. So just keep going, just get started and just keep going. I think those would be the two key takeaways. True story. I mean, you probably weren't posting on Facebook or Twitter or wherever your favorite online haunt is, but you, pr- you probably weren't bragging about like, so I worked for pizza for a job that's paying me negative, you know, $8 a month right now (laughs) to make this change. Like we often don't see that behind the scene, right? Yes. No, we, we don't see what's going on behind the scenes. Like by the time you're reading about someone in the press or things like that, they are, they have carefully cultivated the messages and they know only the high points and, you know, you peek behind the curtain and things are, uh, often a lot messier and a lot less certain. But um, yeah, I don't know. I always tell people, I'm like, just keep going. Just just keep going. Eventually things will fall into place. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I see it even with this podcast. I mean, I think for the first year, maybe six months or so, I'm like, great. I've invested in an antique car. I love having these (laughs) conversations. I love being able to amplify the cool shit other women are doing out in the world. I love all of that, but it's like, yeah, there's a, a couple hundred dollars of technology costs every month, and it's just this thing. And it's been strange to see the opportunities that have been completely unexpected that have come out of this, you know, where I've been asked to be a speaker, or asked to, to sit on a panel or moderate a panel and those kinds of things that weren't even necessarily on my radar or something that I thought I was necessarily good at I'm just curious about what other people are doing and how they're doing it (laughs) yeah and I was I was thinking at the very beginning people would ask me how much money I was making off of long distance voter and I would laugh (laughs) and say I'm really hoping I don't spend more than 2,000 of my personal dollars this year Um, it was like so funny to me that people thought that my zero person staffed nonprofit was somehow making money. I was like, <laughs> ah. um, but 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would agree with you. That's interesting. The opportunities that come your way when you've just found something that you love and care about and are willing to put your time and effort into it. I mean, long before I could draw a salary from this work, uh, you know, other opportunities would come my way. Honestly, just being able to meet really interesting people has probably been the um, clearest benefit from doing this work. I hear you. I roger that and I ditto that. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true because the, the change in perspective you can get from talking to people and for me, especially outside of health and lifestyle stuff, like you need those different perspectives. You need different styles of of getting to the same problem or, or breaking things apart. Absolutely. Um, fire some more questions at me. I find questions fun. Yes. So Deborah, one of the things I wanted to understand too is like, where did this passion for solving this problem come from? Cause you, you kind of sit at the intersection of sort of civic engagement and technology and politics, like where did all of those sort of take hold for you? Um, I'm going to be really honest. I can't quite figure it out myself. I mean, I would say the 2000 election was just like a turning point for me. It uh, honestly just freaked me out. I was like, this is a country of 370 million people. And our election was just decided by nine because um, it was decided by the Supreme Court. Um, and this was 2000. And I mean, I didn't, it's not like I immediately turned around and was like, I'm going to start a voting organization. It was more that when someone I knew casually in 2004 told me that he had started one, you know, and again, he was a volunteer, he was doing it in his spare time. It's like the, there was like an opportunity for me to get involved. And I just, I enjoyed it, I guess. I mean, even though things went off the rails and we didn't have the outcome, we wanted it felt really empowering to say like this isn't my full-time day job therefore I don't have a boss you know I can just try things I can throw myself into this it was really enjoyable and you know long distance voter for me uh a I did think we were legitimately on to something especially after having half a million visitors uh in the first six months even though you know we didn't have an advertising budget like we didn't have a comms team we didn't do any press people were just finding us but part of it was that I had this this project that I was really passionate about and it was mine and no one can tell me to stop working on it. And so I just had like one thing in my life that I felt like I had a lot of ownership over. And, you know, I started Long Distance Voter right as I took my very first tech job. So I don't know. I think I just saw ways that we could like combine technology. I mean, it's not like, I think people want me to be like, and I love technology and I think it solves all problems. <laughs> Actually don't. I mean, I had a flip phone way longer than everyone else had a flip phone. What I like is uh, being frugal and being able to execute on things without a ton of money. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. You can use technology, specifically the internet, to scale solutions. And I was like, I think the solution for increasing voter turnout is just giving people the information they need to vote. So the kind of love of technology comes from just being like a deeply practical person. And I was like, we can have a website for $8 a month. Let's have a website. 
and then over time, like seeing that once you figure out a solution, you can use technology to scale it and it can be like fast and cheap and easy. I think that's sort of the thing I love, but it's not necessarily that I love technology. And honestly, I don't love politics. I think um, they're only politicians until they're elected. And the second they're elected, they become lawmakers. And I think a lot of other people uh, find the campaigns to be like exciting and invigorating and like the drama of it. I actually can't stand any of that. I like when uh, someone's been elected and now they actually have to do a job. I'm a lot more passionate about that part than I am. Politics, um, and I really try to call them, I don't call them politicians, I call them lawmakers. And I'm like, forget the drama of the campaign someone's going to win and that person's going to have so much influence over your life that when people are like, I just don't really care about politics, that's like saying, like, I don't really care about what happens to me as a person because the second they're lawmakers, you may not care about them, but they have a lot of influence over your life. So that might be where it comes from. Seem to not really appreciate other people telling me what to do. And the second someone's a lawmaker, they get to tell me what to do. So I like to have some influence over what they do as well. God, I probably shouldn't admit that, that I just don't like authority. Um, <laughs> but think of it less of a level of politics and more of a dislike and distrust of authority. Well, I mean, I think it's sort of rightfully so. I mean, what we've been seeing, the trend in politics being, is how people are presenting themselves on the campaign trail and then what they're actually capable of delivering, debatable at best. Most days. That was so I, I think <laughs> debatable at best. <laughs> yeah, it's the accountability level is very low. It yeah. seems right now. And maybe it's always been that way. I mean, you think back to little enclaves in history and Tammany Hall, and there's always been a layer of bullshit to politics. But I think we're now understanding how that is impacting us as people. And your, I guess, cynicism, is that the right word? Or, uh, or dislike of authority is... It's just a little bit of a, I like to say pragmatism. There you go. I like that word too. It's so, it, I mean, it's, it's not unfounded, right? It's, it's not like you're this conspiracy theorist out there like, I don't think these people are doing their job or have my best interest in mind. They largely don't seem to at all. No. No, they don't. And you think about the sort of like narcissists who run for office. Um, I can see why like politics themselves are, are off-putting. I'm like, well, campaigns are bullshit, but the law, the law is pretty serious. Um, and these people get to pass laws or they get to like undo regulations. So yeah, I, I, I don't really care for the campaigning side of things. But the second someone's elected to office, I think it's really important to pay attention to them. Yes. And I love what you're doing because it's just bringing more people to the process and highlighting like, hey, we have to pay attention because I think there's so much of that call to action right now, especially since the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are like, well, what do we do? And for starters, like, are you registered to vote and are you showing up? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually I don't know. I'm, I'm always telling people I'm like, there's no magic bullet, but you really do have to vote like <laughs> you. You know, we just had a, an election in California a few days ago, and we had something like 30% turnout, and everyone's like, this is devastatingly low. And I'm like, oh, that was actually higher than I expected. 
But like, just think about how disastrous that is. You know, only 30% of people voting in an exceptionally important election in a state that one out of eight Americans lives in. So, you know, I always remain very um, hopeful. Like we assume the best at votes.org. I'm like, we can increase turnout. There's reasons that people don't vote and those reasons aren't necessarily apathy. But, um, you know, we've got a long road ahead of us if we want to see things uh, change for the better in the U.S. God, and I feel so serious right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, it's so important for people to hear this, I think. And Deborah, how did you go from long-distance voter to vote.org? And I guess also, this may be a trivial question, but I have to feel like that there was some serious negotiations that had to happen for you to even land vote.org as a name okay, so and first as a domain. I'll, I'll tell you the part that I think is most interesting, um, which is how did I go from a person with a passion project to someone who does this full time? Because um, this really was my passion project. I had like three different day jobs and I worked at night and everyone knew it. And, um, you know, I remember after the 2012 election, one of my colleagues uh, at my day job asked me if I was going to take some vacation time. And I was like, why? And she was like, well, how many hours do you work a week? And I was like, I mean, I guess 80 between work and long distance voter, but the vacation, the election's over. So now I only work 40 hours a week. I feel great. And she's like, so you don't think you should take vacation? And I was like, I don't understand the question. So yeah, you know, I, I put a lot of um, energy and I worked really long hours and I had this day job and I was pretty good at this day job, but I had this boss and um, did not really appreciate um, my boss, because he was, um, can I, can I swear? You can ask, you can speak okay. totally freely on this one. People so, are you know, warned. Initially I had assumed the best of this man. And I was like, it's weird at this company that's like 60% female with a user base. That's like 70% female. Uh, it seems the people who are considered leadership are a hundred percent male. And I also considered is key because, you know, you would have, 15 people with a director title but if we had like an important leadership meeting you know with that particular team of directors like only the men would be invited and at first I was like god that's odd I think people just aren't realizing this and I would I would talk to the the boss the boss was um the CEO for some reason I was reporting directly to the CEO and he was like oh wow that's interesting and I was like yeah it's it's interesting but this isn't like an intellectual exercise I mean it's actually like deeply problematic if only men are considered leadership. And, you know, I was at this job for a little over a year and it, it felt like dog years. It was like seven years. And, you know, I'd have these conversations with this man and then they, then they became conversations with HR and then they became conversations with the rest of the executive team. And, and uh, you know, it was becoming increasingly uncomfortable to work there. And then there was uh, one, one epically terrible day which basically ended with me you know calmly pointing out that he was a misogynistic prick um <laughs> which is really just like i'm i'm from brooklyn i want to be clear like i didn't even think this was particularly strong language i thought this was just like calling a spade a spade um and this was a wednesday and on thursday i took one of the only professional mental health days i've ever taken i was just like i need a day off like this man's behavior was so beyond the pale on Wednesday and then 
you know, so this was Thursday, I take Thursday off, and Thursday night, the head of HR, who's also a good friend of mine, is like, hey, we need to talk, and I was like, you mean now? And she was like, you know, because we were friends, and she was like, no, we need to talk tomorrow, and I was like, okay, I'll see you at 10, that's when I get in, and she was like, we need to talk a little earlier than 10. It took me an extra, like, two hours to realize I was going to get fired, and, like, by this point, because I was like, why would anyone make me come in at 8 a.m.? That's weird. Everyone knows I come in at 10. And I texted her, and I was like, you can't just fire me over the phone. And she was like, I just really need you to come in at 8 in the morning. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be pretty cranky about this. Um, <laughs> so at 8 in the morning, I'm there, and our, like, beautiful new COO and her perfectly coiffed hair is on on Skype, you know, and I, I, at this point, I'd really, you know, I knew I was about to get fired. Yeah. The writing is on the wall in like fluorescent yeah. Yeah. day glow pink or something, you know, and, and the amazing thing is like, I felt nothing but a sense of relief, but the head of HR who was my good friend was like crying next to me, you know, cause this was just so fucked up and I'm like being fired by this, you know, beautiful coiffed COO and I'm thinking god he doesn't even have like the balls to fire me himself like this is so pathetic and I I knew going in that there'd be a moment in which she'd be like is there anything you want to say so I was totally prepared I I should also be clear I did not listen to a word this woman was saying it was like Charlie Brown's teachers it was like (laughs) the whole time I was just thinking like does she get her hair blown out every week I mean for real I have never seen her hair not be perfect and when she was finally like, is there anything you'd like to say? I was like, can I keep my laptop? And this was not what she was prepared for. And she was like, what? And I was like, well, I mean, you literally just fired me. And if I can't keep my laptop, I have to go from being fired directly to the Apple store. And I need to buy a new laptop. And I mean, given that I have just been fired, I don't <laughs> want to go buy a laptop. And I mean, literally, she like stuttered. And this is not a woman who stutters. <laughs> And she was like, I mean, I, I, I guess so. And suddenly HR chimes in and she's like, I mean, I think it would be okay. And the, and the COO was like, well, in the past, I guess people have like purchased it from us. And I just like gave her a look and she's like, but yes, I mean, you just made it clear. You don't want to spend any money. And so then they have to bring like the head of engineering in and he's also a good friend of mine. He has to come in to go through my laptop to make sure there's no like company secrets on it. And no one but me was prepared for this. So I took a lot of delight in creating this like little bit of early morning drama. And then I, um, left the head of HR paid for my taxi you know just went back to my house oh it was a lift and I remember the lift driver we started talking and he was like how's your day going and I'm like well I just got fired and it's like 8 50 in the morning and he was like oh this is terrible and we're talking and he drives me home at the end he realizes pretty early on that I was like a product manager he like says something he's like oh you were product and I'm like, how do you know? And he's like, well, I used to be a VP of product. And then I realized I hated my life and I want to be a filmmaker. So now I drive for Lyft and I, you know, make films at night. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, like I do something at night as well. So anyway, this is before this becomes too rambling. The way I went from being uh, an employee to an entrepreneur is that entrepreneur sounds a lot better than unemployed. But, you know, I, I got myself fired and I found myself without the burden of a a day job and a paycheck and all of that. And I was like, well, I can't tell people I'm unemployed. That sounds terrible. So I'll just tell people I'm an entrepreneur. That sounds a lot better. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's the real, that's like the God's honest truth is I was like, I no longer have a job. Fascinating. Oh, and they felt so guilty about the fact that they were firing me clearly without cause. I mean, this was something that I could have like retained an attorney and all that, but I have a union background and I was like, I don't want any of this. I want you guys to give me money to make me go away without being difficult. <laughs> and I realized in retrospect, I could have pushed so much harder. I could have gotten like six months severance, but instead I got like two months severance and I was like, thanks. And they let me file for unemployment. So it wasn't super pressing to get a job, but I was like, maybe I'll like see if I can do some fundraising around my voting project. Um, this was 2013. I didn't really do any fundraising, but when, when word got out in the progressive community that I had been fired, basically a bunch of people gave me contracts to like come consult for their organization. And in 2014, I started raising a little bit of money. And I was like, maybe, I mean, not enough to pay myself, just like enough to be like, oh, maybe I can like run some small projects. And then in 2015, I applied for uh, the Knight Foundation has this challenge, this election challenge, and like a thousand groups apply. And I was like, well, I'm never going to get it. But I did. I won. And I won $300,000, which was astonishing. Our bank account went from $4,000 to $304,000 one week. Unreal. And- congratulations unreal and I was like oh maybe this could like be my job now like maybe I don't have to be a consultant by day and I was like we need a new job we need a new name like we've outgrown long distance voter we don't just do absentee ballots we do voter registration we do voter ID stuff we you know are becoming sort of this online hub for everything you need and someone I barely knew was like you should see if you could buy vote.org and I was like no way And he was like, you know, I checked it out and the guy who owns it, he isn't a squatter. Like he has a democracy project. And he was like, and he has a stat counter in the footer. So you can see like he's not getting a ton of traffic, but he's definitely not a squatter. And I did like a who is search on him. And I saw that on the domain name that he had bought the domain in 1994. And this was, you know, 2015. So this is a man who had the presence of mind to buy a domain name a full year before I use the internet, I'm probably the earliest adopter I know. Um, and I cold emailed him and he got back to me with a number that was bananas. Right? <laughs> and I wrote back, I was like, look, I mean, if, if you really could be convinced to sell this, I need a number that's like, you know, in the, in the, somewhere in the, the atmosphere, not like the stratosphere. And then he got back to me and he was like, hey, I just Googled you and I could see like you're not a politician. You don't work for a political party. Like it seems like you've just been doing this work in your spare time. And I was like, I have. And then we got on the phone and we spent like a few months like just kind of talking because um, we liked each other immediately. And I was like, I want you to come up with a price that is like fair to you. Like, I, you know, he's older. He's in his 60s. This was part of his retirement plan, but like also somewhat doable for me. And he came up with a number, and I was like, I think I could do that. Basically, the deal we came to is that the domain would be held in escrow, but I would get the DNS after the first payment. We came up with a number and a four-year payment plan. And I was talking to a good friend of mine, and I was like, I just need to – the all-in cost for the domain was $100,000, which – on the one hand, sounds like a lot of money, but when you think about the cost of hiring someone to do marketing, I mean, it's basically like a year salary for like a director level person who lives in like a major metropolitan area. 
but he was like, you know, you could have the DNS after the first 50K, which then I talked him down to 25K. So I'm like having dinner with a friend of mine and I was like, 50K seems reasonable. Do we know any rich people? And we're like, <laughs> we're trying to figure out if we know any rich people. Literally, we're just like sitting around. And I'm like, we must know someone and we're making names of people who we know who might know rich people. And like, I mean, literally, this was like absurd. And that night I'm out at a bar and I get a text from my friend and he's like, hey, I want to make a donation. And I was like, oh, there's a PayPal link on the site. And he's like, no, 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 I want to I give you the $50,000. And I was like, what? And he's like, So you're oh. just having drinks at dinner and someone's like, I want to see this happen. Yeah. I'm going to connect these to the plug to the outlet, basically. Yeah. And, and what he said to me over text, because I was like suddenly very sober, I was like, do not use PayPal. And I was like, I, I still don't understand why you're talking about 50K. He's like, I'll explain tomorrow. But we spoke the next day and he's like, I have family money. Like, my grandfather made a ton of money, and it's a weird thing to have, but I can give you this $50,000. And he did. Um, and that's where I got the money to make the first payment. He gave me twenty five k that year and twenty five k the next year. And this, this man who owned the domain, his name was Evan. It was fine with him. And, you know, we, we got attorneys together to come up with the contract, and we used escrow.com, but um, we signed the contract uh, the day after Christmas in 2015, Evan and I are both Jewish, so we did not care that the attorneys were working on Christmas. Um, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is this is happening!" Like I am buying Vote.org, but I bought Vote.org before I went on payroll. I mean, it's still a crazy story. Like I probably once a week, I'm like, "How am I the founder of Vote.org? Like, how did that happen?" <laughs> but it was just that this guy Evan had had offers from everyone over 20 years and he didn't find any of the people appealing like they all wanted the domain somehow for personal gain and I was the first person I mean I told him I was like if you sell me this domain name Evan I will use it to permanently increase voter turnout in America and you know I remember meeting his attorney and his attorney was like he really likes you it was like everyone people had offered him far more money and Evan always backed out at the last minute he was like nope I don't want to give the domain to any of these people. So that's that's a, the rather long-winded story of how I came to be the founder of Vote.org. I just worked on this thing that I loved for a really long time, and then someone else was like, I really like that you're clearly not motivated by any sort of personal enrichment. I was like, no, I, I don't even have a salary. Um, so we bought Vote.org the very end of 2015 we made the first payment like the next day i went to the bank and wired some money and then on january 1st 2016 was my first day having a job that paid me i was uh first employee of long distance voter and then on april 1st 2016 we launched vote.org not a joke it was april fool's day however um and that is how i came to be the first employee at vote.org God, that's such a weird story. I'm going to work on making it shorter. I love so much about this story. I hope you don't change it much at all. <laughs> and maybe it maybe it sounds rambly and sort of screwball for you because you're probably used to doing speaking events where like you have to be a little bit tighter and, and you're probably dealing with fundraisers and things like that now. So you have to present yourself in a certain way. I love the retelling of this story and it, it makes me understand now why our common friends 
John Finasco and Lindsay Stevens have often said to me over the years or assumed that we had met at some point because I'm listening to your story and I'm like, I love that you called your boss a misogynist prick because calling a spade a spade is something I was always in trouble for back when I still worked in finance and, and I, so I got my start in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy, mostly working with all men. And it was wild at best some days and disgusting at worst some days. And, you know, I remember having a job that basically telling a boss at one point in my career who just always talked to me like I was three or had some like mental challenge, like that I just didn't understand English in some way. And finally, I think I'd hit like a wall and just basically said, I need you to stop talking to me like a three-year-old or you can't talk to me anymore. Fair. And hanging up the phone and not realizing like she had me on speakerphone and then, (laughs) you know, like I got the call. Like I was in HR's office. Like I was in the HR department, I think within about 15 minutes. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, this is happening. I've kind of hoped this would happen for a long time, but like. I'm not as prepared as I thought I would be. So I love, like, also your story of just, like, okay, I know this is coming at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. What do I need most? I need cash and I need a computer. <laughs> yeah, can I, can I tell you, this actually will be a pretty short story. So um, most people, my team was all men. You know, I was working in tech and my engineers, they had no idea I didn't get along with the CEO. But there were two other product managers and one of them, we were like still very good friends. So the two other guys were starting to sense that something was awry. And once the three of us were having a meeting with the CEO and we were like, okay, we just need to get him to agree to something so that we can start executing on it. Like it was so hard to just get him to make the decision. And so, you know, we did a little bit of conspiring and it was like, Deborah will bring up the idea and then we'll like enthusiastically back it. And then, you know, we'll get him to agree. So I was like, you know, I was, I was, I've been thinking and I brought up this idea, right? And he was like, that's a terrible idea. The CEO dismisses it. And a few minutes later, one of the guys, Eric, says the same exact idea. And the CEO goes, that's such a great idea. And then turns to me and says, Deborah, why don't you ever come up with great ideas? And so the two other guys start laughing because they think obviously he's kidding, right? Like literally. Like, this has I to be a joke. And five minutes later, Eric says the exact same thing. And so our CEO is like, wait, why are you guys laughing? And Eric's like, well, because that's so funny. I mean, I literally just repeated the exact same thing Deborah said. And the CEO is like, what? And then Eric's like, what? I mean, literally, the CEO hadn't even listened to what I had said before saying, Deborah, that is a terrible idea. And after that meeting, so it's like me and Eric and Warren, because now they've seen, like for themselves, like me suggesting a project, the CEO saying this is a terrible idea, Eric suggesting the exact same project, and the CEO not only saying, Eric, that's a great idea, but turning to me and saying, Deborah, why don't you ever come up with good ideas? And at this point, you know, now my, my team, Eric and Warren, they're like, has, has that happened before? And I'm like, it happens once a week. In our weekly check in, and they were like, "I'm a woman in America in a in a business dominated by men. It happens daily." (laughs) A woman in America, and Eric was like, "Wow, like, can we help?" I mean, Eric's gay. That might have been a part of it because he was like, "I knew you said it was bad, but I didn't realize it was 
that bad? And I was like, every week, guys, every week. And the the Wednesday that was so terrible that led to me being fired on on uh, Friday was that there was like a leadership meeting and all these heads of departments were there and every single thing I said before I could even finish my sentence, the CEO would cut me off to say, this is a terrible idea. It's clear you haven't given any thought to this. Like, I mean, just over and over and over again. And then someone else in the room would chime in. Like, it's actually a really good idea. Deborah and I have been working on this for weeks and he would turn to them and be like, it's great that you're involved because clearly Deborah's not putting any thought into this. And like, I had a room full of people being like, no, I mean, Deborah's the project lead. Like the reason there's a project and a strategy and a plan. And I mean, yeah, by the end of the day, I was just like, I mean, this guy's a misogynistic prick. Like I know you guys keep, people would tell me at this job, well, he just works better with men. And I was like, you know, that's actually not legal, right? Never mind that it's like, (laughs) you know, problematic. And at some point I was like, look, I'm sorry I can't grow a penis, but like, Like, I still work here, and if this guy just doesn't work well with women, then perhaps he shouldn't be the CEO of a company that is 60% female. So anyway, uh, it was uh, really not great for my ego working there. And then, like, within a week, I just felt like myself again. Like, getting fired, it felt like uh, that a really toxic relationship had ended, and I didn't even have to do the breakup was like everyone's on my side you know because I got fired but um yeah women uh I would say I didn't actually experience like sexism like raw unbridled sexism until I was like successful enough to be a threat to a lot of men with that case that being like particularly pointed I mean this was just like a young white guy who has this whole story about how he built a business out of nothing, but he leaves out that like his family network gave him like $10 million to start a business. That's not building out of nothing. That is being a rich, uh, you know, white bro whose family props them up until they're successful. Eh, Good times. Oh my God. So how did you survive as long as you did? Like, knowing that you were, like, dealing with this kind of bullshit weekly, if not daily. Uh, you know what? Initially, I didn't report to him. So it wasn't until, like, literally, I was just doing a great job. And then people above me were fired. And um, But once I started reporting to him, I think it was probably six months. It was definitely, like, the worst six months of my life professionally. Um, and you know, it like impacted my romantic relationships and my friendships. Like I was just a lot less fun to be around, but I swear like the day I got fired, it was just like a huge sense of relief. And it turns out there was like a whole rollout plan because they were like, we have to tell the company. And I was not just saying this quite beloved at this company, Um, and it went over really poorly. I, a, apparently I messed up the rollout plan by telling someone I had been fired before they had a chance to put out the rollout plan, (laughs) but it went really poorly. And then my friend who was the head of HR is like texting me. She's like, you're really messing up the rollout plan. And I'm like, you know, you did just fire me. Um, Yeah. The, the allegiance only goes so far. We'll, we'll get beers again another time, but (laughs) yeah, no. And to this day, I mean, we're still friends and I still make her pay for drinks when we hang out. Cause I was like, remember when you fired me? She was like, she was like, I was 100% opposed to firing you. She's like, you weren't the one crying. I was. And I was like, 
remember when you fired me? <laughs> and then I, I messed up the rollout plan. I mean, it was just the whole thing. In, in, fun, in retrospect, it's all hilarious. At the time, it did not feel very funny. No, I mean, yeah. it, getting fired is scary. It's, you, you get used to a paycheck and life as you know it and that there's a flow. And, you know, sometimes it's like Stockholm Syndrome, too. Yep. Right? Where I it's like tell the, my mom for like over a year and a half. I told her <gasps> that I had like decided. No, I mean, I after a few months, I told her I wasn't working there anymore. But I told her that I had like wanted to be a consultant. Like, you know, she's my, my mom worked in government for 30 years. Like she can't even imagine switching jobs. Never mind like getting fired. So it wasn't until we became Vote.org that I was like, Mom, I feel like you should know. I didn't actually quit that <laughs> job. I got fired. <laughs> well, especially when you acquire vote.org, like people are going to start to take notice of what you're doing and it's going to come out, right? Like you're going to have to answer that question of, so how did vote.org come about? <laughs> yeah. And I decided early on, I was like, I could come up with this like bullshit story, but I'd rather tell people the truth because like the, the people who were honest with me, like the person who said to me, if you work day and night, you too could be an overnight success. I mean, he was absolutely someone I thought had been an overnight success. And he was like, oh my God, no, there was like two years where I like had to sleep on my friend's couch because I couldn't pay rent. It was just like this moment of this person being like honest with me was so inspiring. And I was like, I should just tell people the truth, especially women who are told that they're like troublemakers at work. I'm like, you're not a troublemaker. You're just smart and like <laughs> Deborah, where were you in like the mid 2000s when I needed to hear that <laughs> you know I was I was the same place you were I was working for a Just, bunch of like douchebags and like and not being able to keep your mouth shut <laughs> not you know keeping my mouth shut and I was like I'm not a troublemaker because I'm like I think your revenue projections are wrong like, literally, I would say things like, these revenue projections are wrong. And he'd be like, well, you're just not metric driven. And one day I was like, what? Do you know what the word metric means? Because I was like, you know, you're not metric driven. You literally make up numbers. And I was like, we're going to have layoffs. Like, if you refuse to use actual revenue numbers. And yeah, of course, there were layoffs. I was like, I'm not trying to prove my point. I'm trying to keep my colleagues from getting fired. But yeah, I spent, you know, the early aughts, the same place you did just working for a whole bunch of mediocre men and then some really great women. So the women helped. I had a few male allies, which I think was really important that kind of recognized like, Hey, you just need a little help. And I, to be totally honest, I was a first generation college student. So like I went to school and thought, well, if I get that piece of paper, well, of course, like, I'll get the jobs that I want, and I'll be able to work really hard, and I can think, I'm capable of critical thought, and what I lacked was, like, a lot of the grooming, or the, oh, things happen when you play golf, it's not really just about playing golf, and I was like, I fucking hate golf, so what do I do here? (laughs) And then, you know, and then some of the subtle things, like, I really resonate with what you're talking about, about calling a spade a spade. Yeah. Like, if it's broken, let's just all acknowledge it's broken, and we can start to fix something. And that was not always really well received. Like, I didn't do well with office politics. And so I remember, like, years on end, I would get reviews, and like, it would always come back to, you work really hard, you're really smart, you're checking all the boxes, 
you're not great with the politics and we've been told you don't have a really good poker face because apparently <laughs> I would just give people this like death stare. <laughs> oh my god I remember the first time someone told me there was a, a meeting I worked at MySpace back in the day when MySpace was like a big company it was my first tech job and it was actually wonderful MySpace's tech team was dominated by women so I didn't know that like technology had a women problem until I left MySpace uh, which I, I just want to shout out to that there were so many wonderful women at MySpace but there was some meeting and I thought that I had a totally neutral face and after the meeting one of my colleagues was like the look that you gave that woman <laughs> every time she spoke there was just another woman I know like and I was like what are you talking about like that's my neutral face because I had moved to LA to work at MySpace from New York and she's like that is your I hope you catch fire face. She was like that. She's like, if that's your neutral face, I would hate to see your face when you're openly acknowledging that you think someone's an idiot. So, um, yeah, I've gotten a lot of the like, oh, God, this is something it's it's been pretty recent that I realized this. So there's a couple of uh, keywords that really just mean I wish you had a penis. One of them is like women on their performance reviews. It will say that we're abrasive, abrasive. <gasps> actually you have an opinion and you're not going to back down from it because your opinion is based on fact. Like men get, you're assertive, you're a go-getter. Women get, you're abrasive. Uh, and now... I've this, been told that hundreds of times hundreds in of the times. workplace. You know I only want <laughs> abrasive people on my team. And a new one that I've found is that like progressive men have learned they can't say abrasive. So instead they say you're not diplomatic. But what that really means is you're not considering my ego before you speak. And, you know, here's the thing about not being diplomatic. I'm actually not a fucking diplomat. I'm a CEO. But uh, I would like to say for anyone listening, Vote.org is literally the opposite of all of this. Like, we've, like, built into our culture. Like, you're supposed to give, like, feedback and clear feedback. And you're supposed to be direct. And, I mean, we're very, like, sweet about it. We laugh all the time. Because, like, objectively, like, looking at things and evaluating whether or not we think they're on track or off track and what we're going to do as a team to fix it and the fact that it's really fine to say something's off track means that we don't have to worry about, like, the person who's not just agreeing with me being branded as not diplomatic or abrasive because we're all looking at the same sheet of metrics and saying, like, objectively, are we on track? So, uh, but I remember in 2014 when I had raised a little bit of money, like I could hire a, a contractor to help build software. And uh, I, we were reading an article together about how women's performance reviews have the word abrasive on it. And it was the first time we had both, I mean, this was like news to us in 2014. And she was like, oh my God, my performance reviews always say I'm abrasive. And I'm like, mine too. And we were like, what the fuck? And we were like, I didn't realize that was just a coded way to say you're a woman with an opinion. And then she was like, you know what? Let's do spontaneous uh, performance reviews. And I was like, okay. She's like, I'll go first. She's like, Deborah, you're really abrasive. Keep up the good work. And I was like, Lauren, you're also really abrasive. Keep up the good work. And like, I don't know. Votes.org is the opposite. Like, I'm like, well, I pay you to have opinions. Like, you're not just supposed to agree with me. What if my idea is wrong? Um, so it's really wonderful being the boss because you just get to, like, fix this culture. Like, when I hire people, I'm like, just so you know, I'm not hiring you just to say yes to me. Like, you have to actually, like, have thoughtful opinions of your own because, like, we're a team and we have to hold each other accountable. And if I'm expected to do 100% of the thinking, like things won't work out well for our team. Um, well, so yeah. especially as you grow in your role. Like, I'm sure your role has expanded. I mean, exponentially is probably, again, an, an understatement. 
so I mean, for you to be the creative driving force, decision maker of everything, it would be exhausting. And I don't think anyone's brain could probably keep up at that point, right? No. And, you know, I make bad calls or there's just things I don't know about. But like, we just have a culture of like collectively thinking critically, not critically of each other, just being like, is this the absolute best way to hit this goal? It's really nice. And that, you know, our team is like pretty evenly split between people in their 40s who've had like countless other jobs and relatively young people. And I, you know, at some point, the relatively young people will leave us and go work other places. And it's like, this is what you should be looking for in your next company or organization. Look for people who want you to have an opinion. It's easy to find people who will just do what you tell them to do what you want if you want to be successful as critical thinkers. Like, I want people like you. Like, give me the abrasive women of the world. (laughs) Abrasive critical thinkers who like numbers. Yeah. Yeah, that's literally exactly what I want. I want a bunch of people like me who who get work done. I laugh because, like, I was a CPA. That was my original training. I think in terms of numbers and facts and and trends between numbers and things like that. So when you were talking, it was funny because it made me flash back to like conversations that I have with my husband because we have a budget because several years ago, early in our marriage, I was like, we're either going to have a budget to objectively talk about our finances or we're going to couples counseling. You have a choice. Yep. Like neither, neither are sexy or wonderful, but like you have a choice here. And at that point, he opted to get on board with us using a budget. And it's been wild because I think he's much more of a creative thinker and he's strategic, but in a very different way and in a bigger picture way. And despite that being a strength for both of us, you know, whenever we take any sort of like personality test or things like that, because usually I take one and I'm like, here, take it. Let's see how we compare. (laughs) And then... What I've realized, he sees the world so differently, but like, to me, numbers don't lie, right? Like, they just facilitate decision making. Yes, yes, exactly. So we uh, at Vote.org, we've adopted OKRs recently, objectives and key results, which, um, like, you know, is something Google popularized this idea. And so, you know, we come up with as a team, some objectives and objectives are like these qualitative statements, you know, like. Uh, build the best voter registration tool on the market. Like, just something to inspire you. And then the the key results are something objective that you can measure. So we're like, well, this is our existing conversion rate, and this is our stretch goal. And then, you know, now we've all agreed on it. So weekly we just check in and we say, like, okay, do we think, like, our strategy is still the right strategy to help us hit this goal? And it's just so pleasant. I mean, people know what they're being measured on. You know, you have a say in it. Like, it's not like I set the key results. We set them as a team. It's not like your boss being like, here's some impossible metric for you to hit. But it's just really nice knowing, like, what we're all working on. And we have, like, 100% transparency. And we also started on the advice of a friend. You know, at the end of the week, we celebrate our wins. But we also celebrate the most boneheaded thing we did all week. Uh just because it's a, we like to laugh. So it brings out the laughing, but also like, it's totally okay to do something boneheaded. Like you learn so much from just being like, 
I did something really boneheaded this week, but it's always followed up. Well, and now I know. So next week, like I, I'm going to do something different. And I think that also is a good practice to have. Be like, like people talk about iterating and being agile and all that. And it's like, well, to, to do that, you need to be able to be really like honest and you got to like, fuck and you have to fuck stuff up. You can't iterate you something that's like been done perfectly. Yeah, and you know, it's like assume the best. No one fucks up uh, intentionally. And also, I, the team would be hard pressed to like fuck things up more than I do. Like I'm always doing something incredibly stupid. Um and I'm very honest with that because I'm like, no, 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 you should know. Like no one expects you to be perfect. It's more like don't keep making the same boneheaded mistake. But I like to say as a team, we can really make some stupid decisions. It's always very funny. Um, we're like, why did anyone think that was a good idea? And then we all get quiet. We're like, anyway, uh, don't do that again. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of times where we're like, wow, we all thought that was smart. So uh, what are some it. of the metrics that you're measuring now? Okay, so let's get nerdy. So first, you know, we build software. So uh, one of the things is just conversion rate, what percentage of people who start the process finish it. Um, because, you know, we have a tool that helps you register to vote. So obviously we want to help as many people get through it. So that's like just a really solid one. You know, we look in Google Analytics, what's the conversion rate this week? And we're constantly trying to improve it and... Are there things we can remove from the form? Are there things we can add to the form? So that's a big one for us. Uh, on a more holistic approach, it's like what percentage of the people, like our users, actually cast ballots. So, you know, making sure that we're, uh, whether or not someone votes is public record. So because when people use our tools, we actually have their name in a database, like we match them back. But what we're doing for 2016 is going all the way back to 20. Sorry, what we're doing for 2018 is going back to 2016 and considering 2016 our baseline and trying to, like, improve that while also knowing that there's just a 33% drop-off between a presidential and a midterm election. Um, so ultimately, I would say our actual metric is did we or did we not increase voter turnout, which... Uh, gives us the ability to laser focus. Like if we're deciding between two projects, we're always like, which one do we think will increase voter turnout? And if there's a project where we're like, we don't actually think this will increase voter turnout, then we're like, then why would we do it? You know, because there's, you can't say you're metric driven if you don't actually care about the metrics. Another thing that we're measuring right now, God, this is so nerdy. You can cut me off at any time. No, like, you're like, my tail is wagging. If I had okay. one anyways. Okay. So, like, what percent of the people who, like, use our site actually, like, give any sort of donation? And, like, small dollar donations, it's not just the fact that they're helpful to raise money, but it's a sign of whether or not people find value in what you do. So, we're optimizing the workflows at the end of tools. Like, at the end of a tool uh, work, like workflow, we're actually going to encourage you to, say, donate $1 just to see, like, what percentage of people give a dollar to us. Um, so that's stuff we're keeping an eye on. And Deborah, you hit me up for $2 this morning. Okay. Okay, good, good. $2, you know, we're always playing around with the number. Oh, and by the way, we test literally everything. We will test asking you for $1 versus $3 um, and things like that. And then, you know, longer term, we have some ideas that are designed to get at some of the root causes of low voter turnout. So sometimes we're like, are we even measuring the right thing now? 
because um, we do try to measure everything. Like in Alabama, in this uh, recent 2017 election, I was like, okay, there's going to be really low turnout because no one knows there's an election in December. What the hell, Alabama? So we bought um, almost every billboard in the state of Alabama, and we wrote, vote Tuesday, December 12th on the billboards in Alabama. And literally, we were like, if you tell people to vote, they probably will. Like, at least no one will be able to say, I didn't know there was an election. Um, and Alabama had record high turnout this past December. And it's like, was it the billboards? Was it something else? Are we measuring the right things? So we measure a lot of things, to be honest. And sometimes we even talk about what's the best way to measure this. And with things like billboards and we did radio ads and things like that, we realized that we actually need to find someone corporate, like a CMO, to teach us how do you measure mass marketing tactics because we were like, we as the voting group actually don't know how to measure billboards and radio and TV and things like that. So that's been a fun project. We're all like, who do we know who works in marketing? And, you know, can they teach us about mass marketing? And how long is the right time frame and all of that? So um, not only do we measure things, but we're really open about the fact that, like, we may not be measuring the right thing. And also uh, another sort of cultural norm at Vote.org is, like, ask questions. Ask questions all the time. Like, no one expects you to know everything. So, like, you know, I was the one who was like, guys, I think we need to find a CMO to give us some advice. Um, so in that case, we were like, well, we did measure turnout, but we don't actually know if our billboards helped. We don't think they hurt. But, yeah, we measure everything. I oh, my know. God. I love this. I feel like I could talk to you offline about this for like a million years like oh, how do you measure you this said, and how do you measure that yay i was like oh girl let me know if you want to do like regression analysis with us we're always hiring statisticians to do analysis but honestly one of the things you asked me much earlier in the show like why this i think part of it is that i could there were so many metrics for me like we built a website so i could see if we were getting traffic or not um and i just I like feeling like I have some degree of control over things and choosing uh, voting, which is essentially a volume business that you can measure. I feel like we actually do have a lot of control over our metrics. Deborah, I have to laugh. A rebellious woman who kind of can sort of give a middle finger to authority talking about how she likes to have control of things <laughs> how shocking <laughs> shocking shocking but i and i hope my team would agree with this though i am not a controlling boss um and the things that i really care about i think they just let me get my way like like in google docs i will just change people's fonts if it's anything <laughs> other than like ariel and helvetica i just change it change it back and I don't even realize I'm doing this, but someone once laughed and said, I knew you were going to change the font. I don't even know why it bothered. And I was like, what? And she's like, you always change the font. And I was like, really? And three other people were like, always. You always <laughs> change the font. And I, I think back on all the bosses I've had, and I was like, God, if all they cared about was the font, that would be so much easier. Oh, my God. So, I, I'm laughing because I know. <laughs> like, yeah. these are the things sometimes I'm like, I can't read this. Yeah, like no, this. literally. I was like, someone sent me something once in Palantino, and I sent it back in Comic Sans. I was like, <laughs> well, if, if we're just going to get crazy on fonts, why stop at Palantino? And he was like, I love that your idea of us getting crazy is 
the font that I chose because there is almost nothing too wild for me to sign off on at vote.org. Like if people are like, we should test this. I'm like, Oh, that's wild. I love it. But like, God forbid you choose a sans serif font that I don't approve of. I'm like, it's clear that you don't care about democracy. Um, but <laughs> as, as a boss, I'm always like, it really drove. I never minded when someone else told me what the goal was. But I was like, let me decide how to hit the goal. So that's why I'm, I'm like really clear with people like this is the goal. But like, it's kind of up to you how you hit it. Like you have a lot of control over that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I don't know if this is a problem for you. I'm getting a sense that maybe not. But I guess like when you like all of these metrics, right? And yes. it's, it doesn't sound like it's overwhelming for you. It sounds like it's a place of comfort. But I imagine what started as a simple aim to get people to turn out, to get people who were registered to vote, who needed an absentee ballot to turn out was a a pretty simple problem. The business has sort of organically grown and, and the mission has grown. So how difficult is it for you not to get shiny object syndrome? That's interesting. Okay, I would say specifically with shiny objects, not difficult. Like, I'm just, I mean, I told you earlier, I had a flip phone when everyone else had an iPhone. Um, I'm not distracted by bright, shiny things as much as some other people who were really just born to be entrepreneurs and always want to try crazy new things. I mean, we're really into direct mail right now because it works so well. Um, I don't have shiny object syndrome and also like agreeing to uh, objectives and key results and metrics is helps a lot with that because it's like, wait, 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 we already agreed. This is our priority for the next month. Like we're, we're setting priorities on a monthly basis. Like if, if this new shiny thing is really that important, we'll get to it in a month. Um, so that helps a lot. I actually thought you were going to ask me some other questions about like what's hard right now. Maybe we should talk about that. It's not the shiny objects. I'm like, you know, voting itself is not sexy. You know, it's sexy democracy. So I, I already chose. I already chose like a boring industry. I don't worry about bright and shiny. So. I don't know. It's not like you're selling like vacuum cleaners or something, or like, like you know what? I would be really good at selling vacuum cleaners. I have done a lot of research on vacuum cleaners. <laughs> Wait. I'm so, so what did you what did you decide on? Uh, basically, you should just get what the wire cutter tells you to get but I have a shop vac because they're really inexpensive and I only have hardwood floors and you can't break them so you know if you want to do a separate podcast on like my About Deborah's suitcases <laughs> sheets uh, uh, vacuum cleaner god that even came up one day I remember in, in the general channel of slack someone was like oh Deborah, you probably know this what brand of sheets should I get and immediately I was like well do you like percal or sateen sheets and he was like I don't have an opinion and I was like well I do you should get percal sheets. And he was like, I knew you would know the answer to this. And I was like, here's a link. I researched this for like two weeks. Um, yeah, you should definitely go buy Brooklyn and percal sheets. They're having a sale right now. Um, this is what I do when I'm not thinking about voting. I research other things. I feel like, do you have like a recommendo type email that you send out? Just like... No. No, I don't. I, I feel I, like when you finish these projects, we all need to benefit from like what sheets and what vacuum did Deborah get? Oh, absolutely. Well, now the wire cutter exists. So I'm like, just get it. Although I don't agree with their suitcase recommendation at all. I hope the wire cutter is listening. I'm like, were you guys high that day? 
Um, but no, should we should we talk about? Um, I don't know how much time we have left, but I feel like there's some. Actually, you had some like more challenging questions. If you want to talk about the things that are hard now, I'm, I'm happy to talk about those. Yes. So one of the questions. It's it's not I, I don't ask every guest, but I feel like you were really calling to me with this question. How do you define success for yourself? God, okay, so that is such a good one. So first of all, like I, I really something that that aligns me with some of my favorite entrepreneurs and sets me apart from some others is it's not like personal for me. It really is like is vote.org successful? Are we hitting our mission? Um Okay, there's some like really concrete things that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Like if you are a woman and you are really motivated on like making a business successful or making your organization or successful, I feel like it has a really profound impact on like your personal life. Um, for me personally, I don't want kids, so I didn't have to wrestle with that. But I have a lot of like friends who are female founders and when they have kids, it is so hard because male founders have wives. And, like, they have someone at home to, like, take care of the kids. They also have someone at home to take care of them. Like, with a male founder, it's generally just understood that, like, the wife is going to make, like, his job a priority. Um, And that is not the case with women. Like, you're still expected, you know, to do emotional labor in your relationships. I would say that um, dating has been a real challenge, like, while starting Vote.org. and it's not that I don't like dating. I mean, I had a girlfriend in 2016 say to me, it's all vote.org all the time for you. And I was like, well, it's a presidential election year. And then she said something else. And then a week later, she was still talking about it. And I was like, hold that thought. We were in her house and I left and I just never came back. Um, it was a pretty unceremonious breakup. But I was like, you know, it was just me at that time. I just got into Y Combinator, like success wasn't guaranteed. I was worried about the election. And, you know, my then girlfriend just like, she was literally like, you only think about yourself. And I was like, I actually only think about democracy. But if this is like a turn off for you, then it's just not going to work out. Um, So that's been a little challenging. And also, my friends are so endlessly understanding and sympathetic. But like, I missed everything in 2016. I would like forget that someone was getting married. I would like forget about a birthday party, forget about a baby shower. Um, Just became like really forgetful. And fortunately, my friends knew it wasn't that I was like focused on myself, but I was really focused on vote.org. So that has been a challenge. So much so that one of vote.org's OKRs is remembering birthdays. We have to remember team birthdays before they happen. And so far, we are killing that. If anyone is worried, <laughs> we have gotten so good about like a week before, there's like a secret channel on Slack that the birthday person isn't invited to. And we figure out what they like most. And we track down their partner. And then we like overnight presents. So at least with vote.org, I'm doing really well with that. Yeah, so it's just been a challenge. And I'm like, God, if you are a woman who wants to be successful, there, at least to me, it just seems like the chances are really high that you're going to have to sacrifice a lot of like a personal life because you just can't assume that your partner is going to make your priority their priorities. And I have like a wonderful girlfriend right now who's like so excited about vote.org, but I like worry that I... I'm not quite there for her in the same way. Like she's not an entrepreneur and I'm like, is this fair that we're so excited by my work? And like, are we remembering to be excited by her work in the same way? 
Like, I don't even know if men worry about things like that. I don't know. I'm not sure either. It's interesting because the work that I do now where I'm working with women one-on-one, I don't usually get to have private conversations with women until they are completely burnt out. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. And I, it's more fingers and toes than I have to count on. The number of times I've heard women who are in executive or upwardly mobile positions or founders say, I wish I had a wife. Like, <laughs> yes. And it was, yes. Like, and it's like, yeah, it, we are still carrying a lot of the mental load and the responsibility. I mean, I think women have a, most women, maybe not even most, this is a generalization. The frazzled type A women that I work with tend to be amazing at project management. So yes. they're able to take in lots of different information. So they're the CEO at home and they're the boss of their kids and they're planning the vacations. And then they have this whole other life at work where they're responsible for a million different activities there too. And I, I'm like a, if you had to grade my project management skills, I would say I'm a B. I'm not even a B plus, <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> pretty good at adhering to a system once it is set up. Um, and so that that's kind of how I balance it. But then when I come home from work, like I, I did a podcast once and they were like, what do you do to re-energize and recharge? And I was like, I watch Netflix. <laughs> and you laughed. And then I was like, no, I'm being serious. I mean, what did you want me to say? Like that I like run marathons? No, I come home from work and I'm tired and I watch TV. Um, so I don't think he left my answer. But I was like, I don't know. I mean, I could think of two women in particular who not only run amazing organizations, but both of whom have, they have twins. And I'm just going to ask how they do it. Anna Gallen, who runs Move On, and Elise Hogue, who runs Nayroll, both have twins. They have twins. They raise twins while being like the CEOs of these national, incredibly high impact organizations. And I'm like, God damn it. How do you do it? <laughs> um, so you should have them on your podcast just to ask. And then I can listen to the podcast. I have no idea how they get it done. Yes, I would love to ask them that. And I mean, how do you maintain the level of output that you're doing? Like, what do your hours look like these days? What does life look like? So my, my hours actually aren't crazy. I mean, that's part of it. Like, Vote.org is like a, like 10 to 6, 10 to 7 job. We all know October's busy. Um, and then we have, like, mandatory vacation. Like, you have to take vacation. And that's basically to force, like, me to take vacation. And my, actually, I think we're all kind of workaholics. But there are days where, like, I just don't do much. Like, I absolutely have days where I'm like, I just can't be that productive right now. Um, and I have learned along the way to like go easy on myself. I'm like, listen, not, not all days are going to be like 110%. And some days you're going to be like, look up at six o'clock and be like, I have done nothing productive today. And it's like, that's okay. Tomorrow's a new day. Oh, I'll give you another slogan that sounds cheesy, but the whole team has adopted it. Get 1% better every day because it turns out if you get 1% better every day it's like 3600% better in a year and what that means to us is like it's like you're not going to get you know you're not going to have a, these huge leaps all the time but if you just keep striving for incremental progress it sounds approachable and then you look back 
like we'll look back at the end of a quarter and we're like, oh my God, we're so much better at that than we used to be. So I say that to myself a lot. I'm like, get 1% better every day, 1%. So I'm like trying to get a little more organized with my to-do list like every day instead of being like, come Monday, I'm going to be 100% better at organizing my to-do list. So I'm like, if I'm 1% better every day, by next year I'll be 36 times better. So, yeah, we've adopted some of these, like, kind of slogans. And they're all things that people have literally said to me that have been really insightful. So that's part of it. And I'm like, you know what? Some days you're just not productive. It's cool. It's more like you just got to stick with it. I mean, I've been running long-distance voter and vote.org for a decade now. So I'm like, just stick with it. Um, also, hiring a, a team of really smart people has been enormously helpful because I'm like the chances of all of us like really having an unproductive day, pretty slim. So no pressure to my team. I hope everyone was really productive last Wednesday because I was not. <laughs> How did you learn to have the grace to like step away and recognize that, okay, today I am totally unproductive? Like. How do you feel it? How do you recognize it? And how did you get good at just being like, it's all cool, nothing will die? Because um, you, you do sound like you've had the tendency to be a workaholic. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely still work hard. There, you know what? There are also weeks where I feel like I get nothing done. And then there are other weeks where I've like worked 80 hours without even realizing it because I'm on such a roll. Um, a bit of it is like I have just fucked up so many things in so many new and creative and epic ways over the years and things are still going. So that's helped a little bit. Um, yeah, I think I have a lot more self-awareness now than I did when I was younger. Like I really do know things I'm not good at. And I'm like, it's okay for me to not be good at something as long as I recognize it. And then I find someone else who is good at that to work with. Cause you know, also I feel like a lot of times when you're younger, you get this message or maybe because successful people have these like really carefully groomed images that you're like, they must be good at everything. And I could never admit that I'm having like trouble or I'm not good at something. But I was like, I get it. It's okay to not be good at something as long as you speak up about it. So. And I don't fill know. the gap too, yeah, right? Like recognizing like you're, your job to hire people and build out a team isn't to have a bunch of droid versions of you that are just going to say, yes, Deborah, yes, Deborah. It's really to figure out like, all right, where do I have blind spots? Where am I going to miss things? And who is better at that than me? Also, I learned um, relatively late in life, like the second half of my 30s, I wish I had known this when I was younger, find mentors like, and find a mentor you could be really honest with. And so, like, all of these really successful people are either, like, my mentor or they're on Vote.org's advisory council. And they're the ones who are like, oh, it's, yeah, you're going to fuck everything up. Don't worry about it. Just find the few things you're really good at and get better at those. So if there's any younger listeners, I wish someone had told me in my 20s, like, I, it, when I was 26 and hadn't yet gone to law school, I literally thought I was never going to amount to anything. Like I thought life had like passed me by and now I'm 40 and I feel super young. It's really weird. I'm like, I'm going to get to do all these things because I'm so early in my career. And at 26, I was like, I will amount to nothing. Um, yeah. Finding mentors, getting older. 
So wait, you were 26 years old. I can't picture, based on the conversation we've had, a Deborah that is not getting shit done. And basically, I stalked you for pretty much an entire day the other day, which maybe you felt my, (laughs) my, my presence. But there is nothing that I found. Like, I mean, you seem to have just this solid rep of getting shit done. So back up. What happened at 26 that no, left you I just, feeling like... Funds, I didn't know who I wanted to be when I grew up, so I just kind of wasn't anything. Like, instead of getting a full-time job for, like, a few years, I just had various temp jobs. And, like, I don't really know where I got this idea from. I think because my parents worked in government. And the jobs that they were retired with were, like, the jobs that they started with. So, like... 20-something-year-old me who was not inclined to talk to adults in any way decided that the job I got right out of school would be the job I had the rest of my life. So because I didn't feel ready to choose a job, I just didn't choose any job. This feels, as an adult, like very 20-something thinking, especially my 20-something thinking. So I just like didn't make any decisions. And then part of why long distance voter like flourished is because it was like my side project. I didn't feel all this pressure. Like I didn't feel like I have to get everything right or it will never become anything. It was just like constantly surprising that it was like doing so well. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm type A. I put myself under all this pressure and I was like super anxious and neurotic about my career, but like long distance voter wasn't my career. And now, of course, I read, I'll tell you one story that I don't really ever tell anyone. You know, the entrepreneur I find most inspiring, I don't even know his name, but the founder of KFC, he started KFC when he was 75. He had founded like 16 companies that failed and he was like literally a failure at everything. And then at 75, he started this like one chicken restaurant. And it, like, took off. And I feel like right now, more than ever, especially because Silicon Valley is obsessed with youth, is you just hear about all these, like, you know, 21-year-old female founders who are worth a bajillion dollars. And you're like, well, I'm not 21. I'm already 27. Clearly, the ship has passed. And I'm like, no, that is bullshit. The most (laughs) successful companies are founded by older people. And like, literally, I I can't even remember what I was reading. But I was like, the founder of KFC was 75. And like, by any objective measure, he's like, enormously successful. But I was just like, I mean, I think he's dead now, except for that he died. uh, Because he probably ate too much fried chicken. I was just gonna say the fried chicken did him in. Yeah, but just knowing that this man who started this iconic franchise was in his 70s, I was like, maybe it's not too late for me to start. This was like before Long Distance Voter was my job. Like literally, I was like, oh, maybe you can start something successful later in life. No, I was like an anxious, neurotic mess in my 20s, but it didn't show because I've always spoken with confidence. Um, So I don't think anyone realized that I thought I was a failure at like 25. Oh, Deborah, I hear you. I feel like I'm like jumping out of the closet, like as I'm listening to you. I'm like, yeah, I so many. And maybe it was because I had to work with all men. I had to be tough or appear to have thick skin. But then I'd go home and think, oh, my God, did the analysis I just like fight, you know, the analysis I did, we just had to like have this company like fire all these people and among them there was only like three last names so I'm pretty sure I just like laid off entire families and you know I was just having like these existential crises like outside of work but like you know 
keeping it together and then wondering like is this what i'm meant to do in life <laughs> like i'm really good at coming into fucked up situations and restoring chaos and like putting in processes i'm really good at that and i love it it's when i feel really creative in life but oh my god is there a better way to do this because oh my god is this how the rest of my life is going to be and i remember like thinking in my 20s and looking ahead and not having the right mentors, but almost having like anti mentors where I had bosses and partners that I worked for that it was like, I remember one of them, like everyone loved him. He was like a machine, like, you know, he was like always assembled this A team and I was able to work with him on a few engagements. And it was like, I'm pretty sure his fiance had like left him. And he had been living on an air mattress on a floor with, like, no furniture because she had taken it all with her, like, in this Manhattan apartment. Like, a grown-up, like, big-person apartment. You know, not so just some, like, shitty apartment you live in when you first moved to New York like I did. And it was, <laughs> it was wild to think, like, oh, my God, these people are, like, they have no life outside of this place, and they love it. And, like... It's like battle for these dudes. And what am I doing here? And like silently having an existential crisis, like where my guts just rotted out so bad that I actually like shit my pants, like racing for a flight one time. And I was like, holy God, this is like where I'm at in my mid-20s. <laughs> like I am sitting in an existential dirty diaper in a fucking airplane bathroom with like the flight attendant banging on the door and I'm just like oh my god what have I become so if anyone in the universe can relate to what you were talking about it's me <laughs> yeah that is a horrifying story by the way um, yeah <laughs> it is. That was horrifying I don't know I think that's why you know when you get older and you, you turn 30 and everyone tells you life is better after 30 it really is yeah uh, and and 40 appears to be even better yeah, I'm loving being in my 40s. I mean, I'm I'm just, you know, I'll be 41 soon, so I can say I'm, like, in my 40s. But, yeah, I think I worry less now. I'm not sure what happened. I went on antidepressants. That helped. That <laughs> so, would, you know. Yeah. That would also help. Yeah. So, um, Deborah, I want to get your opinion on something that I like to ask all of the women that I speak to. How would you define being a modern woman? That's a great question. I mean, I think we're all still figuring that as we go along. But to me, the key thing of being a modern woman is not defining yourself in contrast to men. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm just like, yeah, I feel like I can't really speak on behalf of all women. It's interesting because I feel like as a culture, we all have like a concept of like, be a man, right? And it's weird and toxic and all that. I don't know if we have a concept of be a woman, but I will say part of being a modern woman is realizing that maybe it's not all mapped out for you. Like you don't need to be someone's wife and you don't need to be someone's mother and you don't necessarily need a bunch of guys to approve of you. And for me, a lot of it is just like, you know what? Hold your own opinion in high esteem. That's kind of, to me, being a modern woman. But this idea that we can have it all, that is nonsense. Um, <laughs> it's you know, a one-way ticket to burnout is what I'm learning yes, in the past 10 it's, years. It's a one-way ticket to burnout. But, yeah, I don't think I have a good answer for that. I mean, I feel like there's so many ways in which I'm not like other women that I'm not 
really sure how to apply it, but part of it is I'm like, you know, just just try to be true to yourself. Being a modern woman is trying to be true to yourself, and that is like kind of a process of admitting there are things that you don't want. Like, you don't want to do these things. Like, I was like, I don't want to work for someone else. It was, like, terrifying to me, but I was like, I just don't want it. Um, or you were like, I don't want to work in finance, and I don't want to be the person who's coming in and imposing order out of chaos. And That yeah. part I still love. Like, I still love fixing broken situations that are really messy and have a lot of constraints, because I think in terms of process, but, yeah, like... I was like, there's got to be a way to exercise this skill set in a way that is not as horrid and yes. and depleting as the one I chose. Yeah, right. Like just that or just being like, I don't want to work at this company. I don't want this job. I don't want this partner. Like I, I don't want to keep doing things the right way. So I guess maybe modern women, we're learning to empower ourselves because the world's not necessarily going to empower you. And the world doesn't owe you anything. I mean, as soon as men get that, life will be easier, but the world doesn't owe you anything. So it's kind (laughs) of on you to make some things happen. (laughs) So what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Mm -hmm. Themselves. In what way? God, every way. Like, care more care more about what you need, not what someone else needs from you. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's my answer. That's what I got. I know plenty of women who may not know how bad they need to hear that, but I think need to hear that message. So thank you for having it come from another voice other than me. Because I was beginning to sound naggy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although everyone hopefully will get it for herself at some point. Um, I hope so. And conversely, what do you want to see modern women give less of a shit about? That same thing. Like, give less of a fuck what men think about you. You know what men think about you? They would like you to stop talking. Even the most progressive men are, they're so happy to, like, root for the underdog. But the key is that they still get to be top dog. And, like, just care less about what men think. I mean, yeah, you know, now that I'm more successful, men have more to say to me about how I should do things differently. And because I'm in my 40s now and have no fucks left to give, I'll let them, like, finish what they're saying. And I'm like, just to be clear, I don't give a flying fuck what you think. (laughs) And you shouldn't give a flying fuck what I think either. You've already mastered that. So this goes two ways. I don't care about your opinion and you don't care about my opinion. But uh, we should just be really clear with each other about that. Yeah, I don't know. I just picture like you in a room and like one by one, I just see men and their like expression melt and their jaw drop open and like drinks fall on the floor and like in your wake. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and not to say, by the way, that I don't find myself upset after these conversations and have to cool down, but I'm just like, you know, I'm more upset that some asshole thinks his opinion's that important to me, like thinks that I'll change everything about myself because it makes him uncomfortable. Um, Or everything about your organization. Yeah, my organization, or like, it's just like, I'm like, you know what, I feel pretty good about the things I'm doing, and you're just not someone who gets to have a... You're not a decision maker. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, you know, but I really think for so many of us, this is just happening as we get older. We're like, you know what? I just don't really care. 
I don't really care what you think right now. Amazing. I love the example you're giving because I think, I think we do give a lot of fucks or way too many fucks sometimes. So yes, this is super important to hear. And what do you most want Levital Corsalon listeners to know? You've talked about your, your work, your story. We've gotten to know you more as a person. What do you most want women listening to this to come away with? I think I want people to come away with uh, the knowledge that if there is something that they want to do and they want to try and that they can, like it's, it's within us. I don't know. That doesn't feel particularly profound, but um, I think I it think, does. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of waiting around and being anxious about things and that's not really serving any of us. So also, I think it's fine to do things just because you enjoy them. Like, honestly, I just enjoyed running long distance voter and now it's my job. And, you know, I feel like people used to say to me when I was much younger, just find something you love and everything will work out. And now I'm one of those people. Like, it was just such a platitude. But I'm like, just find something you love. And maybe it works out in the sense that it just gets, just gives you a chance to work on something you enjoy doing. There are, there are worse reasons to do something other than you just really enjoy it. So I'm hearing a couple of things, if I may distill this and take a please, crack at it. Please distill it for me. I'm hearing have some fun and just do things that feel fun. And I'm also hearing permission granted. Because I, I do think women especially, and again, a huge generalization and Thankfully, nobody is usually up my junk too bad about these things, but I'm definitely speaking from years worth of private conversations with women and now public conversations on the podcast. There is a like, is it okay if I do this? And what I heard you kind of circling around is like, hey, women, permission granted. You can go do that fun, cool, interesting thing that you're curious about and have at it. Yes. Oh, God, this reminds me. I have a, a friend who's also the uh, CEO of a small nonprofit, and he and I will come to each other with this. Like, he'll literally say, is it cool if I just take the afternoon off? I feel really burnt out. And I'm like, yep, permission granted. And then he does the same for me. I'm like, is it okay if I go see an afternoon movie on a Tuesday? And he's like, yes, it is. You worked very hard last week. So <laughs> without even realizing this, we do this for each other. We're, like, always... I remember when it first started, I was like, wait a second, are you asking me to basically tell you it's okay? And he's like, I think so. I was like, yes, it is totally okay that you blow off work today or that you don't respond to that email or whatever it is. We literally are forever giving each other permission, like, you know, because we're in charge of organizations. So we're like, who's going to give us permission? We do it for each other. Yeah. I love this. So listeners... If you come away with anything from Deborah and I hanging out in Le Vital Core Salon today, it's here's one big giant fucking blank check of permission for you to go have fun. Yes. Go go have fun. <laughs> go take breaks. Go buy that expensive whatever shoes, suitcase, nice sheets. I know we do a lot of that for each other too. He's like, he's like, can I spend this much money on a suitcase? And I'm like, you travel all the time. You could spend whatever you want on a suitcase. I don't, I don't know where we get this from, but it's like a relationship we have with each other. Yeah. Oh, Deborah, thank you for so many laughs. Thank you for so many lessons. And 
Thank you for opening yourself up to this conversation. I know we're like, we have a couple of friends in common, but we have never met or, or spoken to each other. So this was a fucking blast. Um, I agree. This was super fun. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Really? The gratitude is, is mine to. Well, that is mutual. Yay. And I am so excited to amplify what you're doing. I think you described it as kind of the not sexy work, but it's the not sexy work that often makes change. And even if you're making these 1% incremental changes all the time, what you are doing is so important and just being able to amplify that to, you know, I don't know, the hundreds of people that are listening to this at this point. It's truly an honor. And thank you for letting me learn and hang out with you. Uh, Thank you. Hey there, it's Kara again. I'm back. I just wanted to say thank you again for tuning in. I hope you found some inspiration and some ideas from this conversation between Deborah and me. You can find all of the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. That's L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. Again, I want to remind you not to be stingy with this episode. We have some midterm elections coming up, and people need to know about the work that Vote.org is doing. So please, think of three women you know and share this podcast with them. It can be for whatever reasons you want. Maybe it's inspiration. Maybe it's something Deborah shared about her story. Maybe it's just simply the work that Vote.org is doing, and you want people to know about who she is as the founder. Whatever it is, but please find three women in your life and share this show. If you're a new listener and dug this conversation and want to be a part of more like it, then please subscribe to La Vital Core Salon on whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to friends John Vanasco and Lindsay Stevens for helping to connect me with Deborah. I want to thank my producer, Craig Snyder, for all his hard work and effort, and Darlene Victoria for helping smooth out all of the sharp edges with this podcast production process. And we can't forget Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and Mean and the High Dials for performing my most excellent theme song. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.